We uh, have been in a series called Practices, and in this series, we've been looking at how the Christian faith is not just a set of intellectual ideas, but a way of life, a practice. Uh, but today, we're going to put the series on hold because I don't have a sermon ready. And so uh, there's a long story behind that, but this is the first time in nearly 200 sermons at St. Peter's uh, that I didn't feel like the sermon was in a place to preach. And so instead, I want to reflect upon our story. Uh, many of you have heard this passage we've read just a minute ago, John 21. Uh, but many of you, you're newer here and you've never heard why we're called St. Peter's Fireside. And you might be wondering, why did they choose that odd name? Uh, and there's, there's a story behind that too. We thought, well, maybe we should be called Fireside. And everyone's like, that sounds like a weird youth group. And we're like, okay, uh, how about St. Peter's Fireside? And everyone's like, well, we don't know what to do with that, but it's better than Fireside. And so... There's a story behind our name, and I want to reflect on that story, but I also want to invite you into that story. And so if you are a guest today, uh, this sermon will be a little different than how we usually walk through a text. It's going to be a bit more of jumping in and out of the text, uh, interspersed with a bit of history lesson about the nature of our church. And so one thing that's helpful to know about this story is it doesn't come out of nowhere. N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar, he says that John chapter 21, the passage we just read, is one of the greatest pieces of literature out of the ancient world. When you actually examine it and see what's happening, the multi-levels of communication that are going on, it's just this profound image. And when I was living in Orlando, I grew up in Victoria, at some point moved to Orlando, and I started working at a church. One of my first jobs ever was in a recovery ministry. And so what we would do on a Monday night is gather people together who are working through hurts. Now, they may have gone through trauma. They might have gone through divorce. They might have been dealing with anger. Uh, they might have been dealing with addiction, uh, Oxycontin. They might have uh, just struggled with anxiety and depression. But what we did in that space is say, look, we're not going to name you by your struggle. Rather, we're going to name the commonality beneath the struggle. And so we didn't break people apart based off of their problems. We just got people together in a room. We listened, we prayed, and we journeyed together. But we often told stories. We would share stories about what was going on in our lives and how we ended up in this place. And we saw lives transformed. And often, it was because we proclaimed this story out of John 21, this fireside experience that Peter had. If you're not familiar with who St. Peter is, uh, he was one of the first people to follow Jesus. His name was actually Simon. Uh, and often people call him the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, which I'm sure he loves. But uh, he was a very brash and bold and ambitious man who loved to uh, share his opinion. And sometimes it was, you know, a little awkward. And sometimes he would prof pro say profound things. He was the first person to say Jesus is the Messiah. And yet... Simon had struggles. He was human. He, he wasn't perfect. And yet, one day, Jesus says, you're not Simon, you're Peter. It's a play on the word rock. On this rock, I'm going to build my church. You're going to be a core leader in this movement that I've begun on earth. Simon becomes Peter because Jesus calls him Peter. And yet, that didn't change everything overnight. And so what I want to look at is the backstory behind John 21 before we jump into John 21. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be going in and out of John chapter 18 and John 21. 
Because what we read in John 21 is this. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. So this is the third appearance of Jesus in the Gospels. The third appearance after he's been raised from the dead, and he encounters Simon and his friends fishing. But you have to ask, why are they fishing? What's, what's going on here? What's the backstory? Before Jesus was betrayed, before Jesus went to the cross, he had an intimate meal with his followers. And at that meal, he said to Peter, you're going to fall short. All of you, you're all going to betray me on the way to the cross. And uh, it's okay. I know this is going to happen. And what does Peter say? Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So now we have to talk about Peter's rooster complex. His rooster complex. If you look in John 18, which we will do in a moment, everything Jesus said would happen begins to happen. And yet Peter, seeing Jesus arrested in the garden, being brought before the leaders to be put on trial, he keeps following at a distance. He keeps trying to stay as close to Jesus as he can. He keeps trying to resist the betrayal that Jesus said was inevitably coming. So we read in John 18, beginning in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man, Jesus, should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. You jump ahead to verse 25. So they said to him, you're also not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Backstory there, Peter cut off a guy's ear. He asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it and the rooster crowed at once. This is the denial scene. This is the story that Peter didn't want to be his story. The story he said would never be his story. The person he thought he would never be, he suddenly becomes. And it's not pretty, it's, it's a betrayal. Not just a betrayal of his own ideals, not just a betrayal of who he thought he was, but a betrayal of his best friend. I think we forget that the pain of the crucifixion did not begin on a cross, it began with Jesus being betrayed by his friends, the people he did life with, the people he loved dearly, who he also knew were incapable of following where he was going. And there Peter confronts himself. He confronts that Jesus has to do something. Jesus has to go somewhere that he cannot possibly follow. The calling is too high for anyone to go any further. 
And the denial is, is particularly cutting. I mean, the first examiner is a young girl. A young child. You're not one of his followers on you. What is the risk of saying, yeah, I'm a disciple? But Peter denies it. Then he's asked again and again. This is not an accidental denial. It's not just a slip of the tongue in one scenario. This is three flat-out denials. I never knew the man. And then the rooster crows. In Luke's gospel, at that moment, because Peter was in the courtyard, he could see Jesus. It says that Jesus turned and locked eyes with Peter, and Peter left and wept bitterly. And if you're familiar with the Christian narrative, how this unfolds is that Jesus is examined. He's tortured by Roman executioners on the way to the cross. He's crucified. He suffers and he dies. And that's the story. That's what Peter sees as a result of his inability to defend his Lord, his master, his friend, the person who said he was Peter. But then three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. You know, dead stuff doesn't stay dead. Dead stuff comes back alive, and he appears. He appears in multiple times. He appears to Mary Magdalene. He appears on a road to Emmaus. He walks with his disciples. He appears to all the disciples huddled in a room. And John in chapter 21 says, on his third appearance, so this is the third time Jesus is meeting up with his disciples, and we find Peter fishing. Isn't that odd? Why is he fishing? Why is he fishing? I mean, you've seen, this is the third time, right? You've seen that Jesus is alive. You know that the world cannot possibly be the same. Dead stuff comes back to life. And yet he's fishing. Why is Peter fishing? All, all we can do is turn to conjecture. But I would suggest that when you fail, when you're confronted with that part of yourself that you know is not what you thought it could be, when you have to deal with that part of yourself, utter failure. Often what we do is we return to what we're familiar with. We return to what we're good at because then we can get a sense of identity again. Peter might say, okay, I can't lead this movement of Jesus. I am no rock, but I was a good fisherman and I can keep fishing. I can keep doing something with my life, but it should strike us as odd. If any of you are old enough to know what like a 486 computer is, uh, it would be odd if you had a laptop today, but you kept using your 486. It would make no sense. In the same way, it would be odd if most of you decided to keep crawling instead of walking. Like it would just not make sense. It doesn't make sense. He's seen that Jesus is alive. It changes everything. And he's fishing. He's fishing. And yet, Jesus meets them even out there. So as we read in John 21, they see a useless night. Peter tries to return to what once was working. He goes back to fishing, but it's all in vain. They catch no fish all night long. They labor and they label, and it brings about nothing. And how much is that our life? We labor and we try. We try to find a sense of purpose. We try to find a sense of meaning. We try to find something within ourselves that we can hold on to, and yet we seem to be laboring and laboring in vain. And Jesus, from the shore, does what he did long ago. Try the other side, and they catch an abundance of fish, and they recognize it's Jesus, and so they rush to the shore. And I love this. I'm going to read from John 21. They get to the shore and 
Jesus said to them, verse 12, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't just go straight to the heart right away. He actually sets a table. He sets a meal. He sits with Peter. He shares his presence with Peter. They eat together. Maybe in silence, maybe not. Maybe small talk, maybe banter, maybe jokes. We don't know. But the meal has to proceed getting to the heart. Jesus creates a gracious space. A space in which Peter, with all of his fears and hurts, can sit with the Lord. And before they have to be brought to the light, he can be with Jesus. And Jesus is happily with him. But over time, and we'll find this to be true, if you draw near to Jesus, if you sit at that meal with him, over time he's going to ask a question like this. He's going to ask a question that is aimed at your heart to bring to light the things that need to be talked about. Simon Peter, do you love me? What does Peter say? Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend to my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Takes three questions, the same question in a way, for Peter to connect with his heart. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And why does it grieve, Simon? Why does it evoke grief out of all the responses? I think the first problem is ambivalence. Ambivalence is feeling two things at once, two conflicting things at once. So Simon could feel sincere love for Jesus, but also have the memory of betraying Jesus. So he could feel love and failure and shame at the same time. That's ambivalence. I was uh, watching the YouTube recently, and uh, I don't know if you guys are into action movies. Probably not, but I am. And the, the uh, Expendables, anybody familiar with this? The Expendables, number two, not number one. I mean, every action hero you could ever name is in that movie. Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Terry Crews, Jason Statham. I mean, you could go on and on. Chuck Norris. I mean, it's a terrible and great movie all at once. And Jason Statham and Terry Crews are being interviewed. They're doing, you know, their kind of promo stint on this movie. And they tell a story of filming a scene in Russia. And Jason Statham's like driving this truck. And it, it's supposed to go off the bridge, um, 
but the, that was going to be CG, so he was going to stop. So he's driving, he's going to hit the brakes, and the brakes don't work. So he's buckled into this, this massive like semi-truck, and it just sinks to the bottom of the river, and J Jason Satham's, you know, I'm going to die. <laughs> action hero, strapped into the thing. Meanwhile, on the shore, you have every action hero you could ever want in that scenario. You have Arnold Schwarzenegger. You have Sylvester Stallone. You have Jean-Claude Van Damme. You have Terry Crews, if you don't know who he is. I mean, that's who you want to be on that dock. And yet all of them just stood there like, what do we do? And Terry Crews, the way he recounts it, he just started screaming, Jason! <laughs> Jason! And Jason Statham is a true action hero. He said, well, I got to the bottom. I let the, the boat stop. I took off the seatbelt and I swam up. No big deal. But all of those action heroes had to face their ambivalence. They have an image of being strong. They want to be the person who can save the day. They love to act as the person. But then they're confronted with a real-life situation, and they do nothing. That's ambivalence. Peter, he's feeling love for Jesus, but also that memory of betrayal. But what's, the, what's really happening is shame. Peter's ashamed. Brene Brown, uh, the Pope of the Internet, defines shame this way. The intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we're flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. I'll read that one more time. The intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we're flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. So Peter's sitting with Jesus. He's sharing a meal. Jesus asks three times, do you love me? And Peter says, I love you, Lord. But I also betrayed you, and you know that, and I don't know how to say that. And he's feeling ambivalence, but it's actually shame. He's feeling ashamed that he is the type of person that could betray Jesus. He's feeling ashamed that he was not the person he thought he was. So he's not just feeling guilt. He's not just feeling bad about something he did. He's actually asking, what's wrong with me that I could do that? That's shame. What's wrong with me? Yes, I love you, but I also betrayed you. And he's grieved the third time. Now, those of you who are Bible nerds, there's some really neat stuff going on in the Greek here. Uh, Jesus rotates uh, some words. Uh, it's tricky to define what's going on here. But when Jesus says, do you love me? He, he uses the word agape, which is a, a word for love. And then Peter responds, you know that I love you, but Peter uses the word phileo. Now, people try to make those words mean too big of a gap, I think. that If you look at John's gospel, those words are used kind of interchangeably. And yet, stylistically, Jesus says, do you agape me? Peter says, I phileo. Jesus says, do you agape? I phileo. And so the third time, Jesus says, do you phileo? And, and so he's pushing on that point. And we have to ask, why does Jesus want to bring Peter back to this, this place of grief, this place of shame? And if you look at the whole environment, he's intentionally recreating the fail, failure. You can't escape it. If you look at when Peter denied Jesus, it took place at a charcoal fire. 
If you look at this breakfast, it's at a charcoal fire. If you look at how many times Peter denied Jesus, it's three times. If you look at the questions, it's three questions. Jesus is saying, we can't move forward. We can't truly move forward until you see that I never left you even when you betrayed me. We can't move forward until you understand that my grace is actually big enough to meet you in shame. We can't actually move forward until you see that your failure, your shame, all your sense of unworthiness, it does not change a thing about how I feel toward you. We can't move forward, Peter, until we talk about this. You see, this isn't a morbid obsession with just talking about difficult things or having heavy conversations for the, the sake of heavy conversations. This is Jesus tending to the very being of someone he loves. And it's the way he tends to each and every single one of us. Because we chose this narrative for this purpose. All of us have two fireside scenes, or at least that's what we hope. Every person in this room has their own version of what happened at that charcoal fire. You have your own ways that you fell short, your own ways in which metaphorically or literally you've betrayed Jesus. You have the things in your life that can cause shame and that can make you ask the question, what is wrong with me? And all of us try to avoid that space, if we're honest. Like Peter, we go back to fishing. Growing up, I played music and right out of high school, uh, I, I, I like to say I was a, a touring musician, which just means that like, we were silly enough to buy a rundown van for $2,000 and drive across Canada a few times. But that's what we did. And uh, our band, I don't know, if you like screamo music, you would think we're great. But that's what we were doing. And uh, over the years, we, we poured ourselves into this for about four years. And uh, we had a song on, on the radio that hopefully you don't find. And, and we were in negotiations for a record deal. And one day, uh, my drummer pulls me aside and he says, look, uh, the label has said they'll sign us, but we need to get a better singer, which was great for everyone but me because I was the singer. And so they went on and signed a deal and went on to an unsuccessful career. But I, I was confronted with myself. I, I hadn't really gone to school. I, I didn't really have a backup plan. I... I had poured my life into this. I had seen it as my identity. I was a musician. All my friends were musicians. And I didn't just feel like I had failed. I felt like something was wrong with me. Because deep down, I actually knew they made the right call. Deep down, I knew I couldn't be what they were asking me to be. And I felt shame. So I went back to my previous profession, cooking pizza at Panago. And it gave me a sense of identity, but it didn't work. And I was broken in that season. I was 22. I didn't grow up as a Christian. I grew up in a good uh, West Coast family. We're, we're good people. And, and that just wasn't working for me. And I had been exploring spirituality. I would have never described myself as an atheist. I was spiritual, but not religious. I had been into the Bhagavad Gita. I was one class away from being a certified yoga instructor. Namaste. Uh, I, I had explored spirituality and none of it was working. None of it was dealing with that shame. If anything, it was exacerbating it. I would try to meditate, and all I could do was connect with this hurt I was feeling. I would try to uh, medicate with drugs, and it was just making it worse. 
And so one night I'm driving home 2 a.m. from a, a shift uh, at Panago. And I, I take my hands off the wheel and I say, look, if there's a God, I'm done. I'm done. I need you to show up. I don't know what to do with my life. If there's a God, I need something because I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't feel like I'm worth anything. And I heard this still, quiet, intuitive voice say, put your hands back on the wheel, which I realized I had a Jesus take the wheel moment retrospectively. But I, I felt this intuitive voice say, turn left, turn right. And I ended up in this parking lot uh, in Sydney, BC, uh, where, and then there's like a bit of forest and then the ocean, but it's 2 a.m., it's pitch black, and I felt like I was supposed to walk into the woods. I'm not going to walk into the woods. It's like 2 a.m. Like there might be a cougar. You know, you never know. But eventually I convinced myself to walk into the woods and I kept walking until it was pitch black. Couldn't walk anymore. And again, not an audible voice, just an impression that I heard. Even if the darkness overcomes you, I'm with you. I remember thinking that is a very odd thought. I would never think that myself. Even if the darkness overcomes me, you're with me. So I knew God was with me, and I went home. And I didn't think much about it. Three days later, an interesting number, my singing instructor said to me, Alistair, I know you're going through a hard time. I don't usually talk about my faith. I don't like to push it on people, but I love you. And I see you're struggling. And I think this book would really help you. And I respected her. I really did. And I said, yeah, I'll read a book that you give me. And she, she gave me this book, and she gave the back cover first, which was a Bad decision, because the guy was wearing a Hawaiian shirt, so immediately made a judgment, but turned it over, and it was called The Purpose-Driven Life. And uh, I said, okay, I guess I'll read it. And I had to like sign this like commitment to read it over 40 days, which I'd never done. So now I felt this like, oh, well, I better do that. And uh, another band invited me to go on tour, and I read this book one chapter a day for 40 days. And by the time I put it down, I realized, like, at best, I'm going to be like a secret Christian. You know, like there's a lot of things I don't get about this, but Jesus, I found out in that book, is Emmanuel, God with us. The light bulbs went on. God is with me, even in that place of darkness, even in that place of shame. And my whole journey with Jesus has been me trying to avoid that spot and him waiting and saying, do you want to talk about that now? Do you want to talk about those times that you felt worthless? If you're not ready, you can, you can stay at this meal. I'm not going anywhere. But if you want to talk about it, I'm here. And I love you. Even when you failed, even when you have felt like you're worthless, I love you and I'm with you because I went to the cross to die for you. See, so we all have our stories. And our hope in planting this church, we're, we're coming up on five years old now of services, um, is to have those fireside scenes. You see, my hope is not to create the first fireside scene for you. We might accidentally, and we'll, we'll apologize. But our, our hope is that whatever your backstory is, and I, I can't possibly know. Look how many people are in this room. You would be able to have an experience where Jesus doesn't avoid those parts of your life, but enters into them and offers you grace and sits with you and tends to you. And then you hear him say the profound words, feed my sheep. Can you imagine the awe of that for Peter? Wait, I'm still the rock? Wait, you still want to use me to build your church? 
Feed your sheep, tend to your lambs. What? So what is Peter going to feed anybody? Grace. Experienced grace. Not just the idea of grace, but a grace that met him in his shame and healed him. You see, our hope is not just that we would all experience grace as beautiful as that is and as much as I desire that for everyone to know the grace of Jesus in their heart and in their bones. Our hope is that that grace might send you out into the world in a unique way. Because the calling never changes. Jesus gets up and says, follow me and tend to my sheep. And as you experience grace, and this is our prayer, we'll create gracious spaces throughout our city. Because what Vancouver and what the world really needs is not a bunch of people who have the right answers. It doesn't need people who uh, think they know everything. What is refreshing is when people take off the mask and say, this is where I've fallen short. This is the struggles in my life. And this is why I love Jesus and have awe about who he is. Because although he is the God of the universe, he is found with us. And he died for us to forgive our sins, to clean us so that we can find a sense of worthiness in those places of shame. Because he loved us enough to be betrayed, to experience suffering, to experience hurt. So our hope is that you would experience that grace and that that grace would send you out into the world to create gracious spaces. So when friends in your life are struggling, you can actually sit with them there and tend to them until they're ready to have that conversation. You don't have to rush it. Jesus is great at waiting. He has the meal before he asks the question. But my hope, my prayer for our church is that we can create these sort of gracious spaces where we sit with our friends in their hurts or in their loss or in their grief and we tend to them. And we might just say, I don't know all the answers, but what I do know is Jesus is already here. I'm not bringing Jesus into the situation. He is already here. And he wants to tend to these hurts. And maybe the best thing you can do is invite them into an environment where they can learn more. You don't have to have all the answers. That's not what we're saying. But what we are hoping is that when you experience grace, it would be contagious. Because I think that's the nature of grace, isn't it? When you experience Christ meeting you in that place of failure, how can you not want others to know that grace. It's never pushing it on people. It's saying, look, I, I don't know why Jesus is this good. I don't know how to explain to you how I've come to believe all this. But what I do know is if you open up those soft spots of your life, those hurting spots of your life, he will meet you and transform you and it'll change your life. And even if you're not ready for that, I'm here to sit with you in those places. And in that way, you're the presence of Jesus in this city.